we do have a slight change of plans <laughs> that forces us to have to explore new terrain, right? This happened in my personal life where I was this budding concert violinist that was on the speed train to hopefully becoming a pro. And then overnight, I have a hand injury that totally ends my career, basically in an instant. And I remember at the time asking myself all sorts of existential questions like, who am I without the violin? Like, what value do I bring to this world? It was though someone had pulled out the rug from underneath me because for my entire life, I defined myself as being a violinist. And all of a sudden I wasn't, and I didn't know where to go from there. So it was so obvious to me in hindsight that I was falling prey to identity foreclosure and that it would actually be very valuable for me over time to start seeing my identity as more malleable. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Maya Shanker. Maya is a cognitive scientist and the creator, executive producer, and host of the podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, which Apple recently awarded as the best show of the year for 2021. Maya was a senior advisor in the Obama White House, where she founded and served as chair of the White House Behavioral Science Team. Maya has a postdoctoral fellowship in cognitive neuroscience from Stanford, a PhD from Oxford on a Rhodes Scholarship, and a BA from Yale. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Maya Shanker to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Maya, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Doug. Yeah, I'm so excited to talk to you because I love getting into the weeds on behavior change, on cognitive science, and essentially like like why we make decisions. And I guess like one of the biggest questions I have, and I can only speak from my own personal experience, is like what do you think stops from a behavior science perspective? What do you think stops most people from making the changes they know deep down that they need to make? Yeah, I mean, there are so many factors that can impede our ability to reach our long-term goals. In many ways, that's what I study. <laughs> um, I study all of these very surprising factors that influence our, our judgments and decisions and behaviors. And I mean, the one very reassuring part of being in the field of behavioral science is that when you determine what some of those factors are that are affecting our behaviors, sometimes even outside of our own conscious awareness, it means that we can design our lives around those things. We can design public programs around those things. We can design products around those things. So a good example of this is we like to think, for example, when we go to a voting booth, we're going to vote for the candidate we most like to see elected into office. That, that seems pretty straightforward, right, Doug? But it turns out that the order in which the candidates' names appear on the ballot has an outsized impact on voter behavior. So there was a study run in Texas showing that if a candidate's name was listed first on a ballot, that candidate garnered 10 percentage points more in vote share than their peers that were lower down on the ballot. And so what this shows us is, oh, wow, the order in which names appear can affect us, right? There's some sort of like first in line effect that's happening. And so what that means is in order to make voting systems equitable, we can make sure that we're randomizing the order in which uh, candidates' names appear on the ballot. Or if we know that, you know, inertia 
uh, is preventing us from like taking up that gym membership. <laughs> and, and, you know, at, in the morning when you get up, it's just easy to go do your rituals of coffee and whatnot. You know, some folks will leave their workout clothes right on their dresser, their sneakers right by the door. Uh, so these little nudges that can help them get to that point. So it's really just about, I think, understanding where these biases lie or where these weaknesses lie and then trying to design around them in order to have a better chance of reaching our long-term goals. Right. Yeah, it seems that it's so it can be so complex I think to change a behavior, change a habit, like change the way you do things at least from my own personal experience, but like you just said, I think there can be some simple ways to implement certain parts or different things into people's lives to make that change a little bit easier. And I guess selfishly the reason I I bring that up is one of the questions I get asked the most is you know, when I was incarcerated, I was down and out. I was having suicidal thoughts. I was severely struggling with opiate addiction. I had no self-esteem. And my cellmate at the time talked to me and convinced me to start working out. And in that moment, I decided to give exercise a try, even though like in previous years, I wanted nothing to do with changing my behavior, changing my life. And people will ask like, well, what made you do that? And it's really hard for me to answer that question from like a science perspective, the only thing I can say is I just knew I wanted more for myself. And I knew that I had reached a point where nothing else was working and I needed to take a step in the right direction. So I kind of wanted, that's why I wanted to ask like why people don't make the changes they know they should make, because I knew that exercise is good for me. I knew that not doing drugs is good for me, but for the longest time, I didn't feel confident to do so. Yeah, I love that story. And it's, first of all, it's so inspiring. Um, and I'm so glad that you you invested in that. I mean, there's some research. I mean, I think one of the biggest reasons why we can sometimes delay the things that we know are in our best interest is that the rewards only become clear in the longer term versus in the short term, right? So when it comes to a really arduous workout, all you can imagine is pain in the short term. And then whatever gains there are to your cardiovascular system or what have you, your health and wellness, that's typically something that's at a minimum delayed <laughs> until after the workout. Uh, and then often it's decades out, right? Or, or maybe at least months or a year out. And so some of my favorite research in behavioral science is called temptation bundling. And it refers to the idea that it can be really sensible to pair an undesirable task with a deeply desirable one. And so that, by that I mean, when it comes to going on the treadmill, going on the elliptical, I save my favorite TV shows, my favorite songs for only those times where I'm working out. And I deny myself the pleasure of listening to those things outside of that context. And what that means is my subconscious starts kind of looking forward to the workouts because it knows that it's going to be able to hear, I'm going to be able to hear my favorite Taylor Swift song, or I'm going to be able to watch my favorite TV show that I can't wait to learn what happens in. And so this temptation bundling, right, it seems like a very small thing, but it's really had a profound impact on my life, Doug. So things like listening to my favorite podcast while I'm folding laundry, right? Listening to a favorite audiobook while I'm like tidying up the kitchen, right? So you can just pair these things that typically you'd be like, "Ugh, I totally don't want to do those things." But then you 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 tie it to something that's very tempting and then over time, you know, that that pairing can actually be desirable. Right. Oh, I love that. And I love how you brought up like these prompts and and being able to 
make these like habits easier for us to change. Like you mentioned that the music with the workout and music's very important to me when I work out, like I'm one of these people where if I don't have headphones, like I'm not going to the gym. It's just, I'm weird like that. Like I cannot work out without music. I'd mm-hmm. rather go back at night. I'd rather just be like, you know what? Like I'm going to get in an extra day next week or whatever, because I need music when I work out. But I think it would be important to also look at the reverse. Like, does that also work for trying to change a bad habit, like taking away the prompt? Like if you're somebody who's trying to cut out sugar, you know, removing the ice cream from your freezer, like does that sort of thing work? Yeah, I mean, there is an individualistic element. So you have to figure out what works, but certainly... Uh, creating what we call a adaptive choice architecture um, that is consistent with your long-term goals is absolutely healthy um, and and very productive, right? Because if there's no ice cream in your freezer, then there's no ice cream for you to consume. And so some places will use this logic when they're trying to get you to, like some workplaces, when they're trying to get you to eat healthy foods during the day, snacks, they'll put the healthy snacks at eye level and maybe all the cheat foods, (laughs) the unhealthy stuff on the lower level. And so it's actually harder for you to access those things, right? It's not just an automatic like, oh yes, the potato chips. And so, um, yeah, you can absolutely try to restructure your environment to, and it's actually really interesting on my podcast, The Slight Change of Plans, I talked to Angela Duckworth who studies grit and determination. And part of what she talks about is what it means to exert self-control when it matters, to, to avoid the temptations in our lives. And she says, actually, that's not even the right way to frame the problem. It's It's less about you know, exerting self-control and more about creating an environment in which self-control isn't necessary. Um, And so to your point, Doug, right, if there's no ice cream in in the freezer, you don't need to exert self-control, right? You're not actually having to work that hard because the thing isn't around. And so she was talking about a, she was offering up a, a whole list of ideas for ways that you can restructure your environment so that temptations aren't even present. And then you just, it's just not as hard a battle to fight. Right. I love how you brought up environment because one of my favorite things that that I like to say to people is that I think our environment can create a false sense of normalcy, right? Like I always say, if if you're surrounding yourself with people that are engaging in bad and negative behaviors all the time, you're going to find that to be somewhat normal. And if you start to surround yourself with people that are making better decisions or looking to contribute good to the world and are helping each other out, like that's going to become more normalized for you. Is there science behind that? Or do you just think that's just part of human nature and our adaptability as, as creatures? You're talking about the positive or negative influence of the... Yeah, yeah, yeah you mentioned like mitigating the self-control with your environment. And I was just wondering, I know you you talk about how our environment can impact our decision making. And I was just wondering if there's like, like science, I guess, behind that as to why our environment impacts, you know, the choices that we make so much. I, I think I'll just talk about an extension of this, which is like, at the end of the day, we are we are highly social creatures. And so we are inevitably going to be influenced by our surroundings. And that extends to the groups that we're surrounded by and, and their influences. Um, and so we know from from cognitive science research, you know, the power of peer effects and social norms, like, we will often act in ways that align with the the way in which the groups we identify with act. And this can be for good, right? So for example, there's research showing that when you know that your neighbors are using less energy than you're using, you're much less likely to use less energy. <laughs> um, but then also it can be counterproductive, say when you're trying to depart from a certain population, let's say, population identity, and you're trying to move forward to a new one, um, but in some ways you feel held back by that old group identity and, and those norms. 
That's such a great point. And I heard you talk about that. And I'm so glad you kind of brought that up because I wanted to ask you, like, like peer pressure can actually be good, right? People think of peer pressure in this, in, in this <laughs> negative way because, you know, like oftentimes it's looped in with people making bad decisions, doing drugs, engaging in other like mischievous like behaviors as teenagers, so to speak. But, you know, as somebody who's in recovery, one of the questions I get asked a lot is how do you like transition out of one population, one friend group into a new one, if you're trying to meet new friends, if you're trying to, to make certain decisions. And I know you talk about this idea of like identity foreclosure and like letting go of that old person. So do you have any like, practical steps somebody can take if they're really trying to make those decisions to move towards a new population? Yeah. Identity foreclosure refers to the idea that as adolescents and certainly as we grow into adulthood, it can still be the case that we, we tend to get locked or fixed in a very narrow identity and it can prevent us from being exploratory about all the other identities that we might embody. And that can really hold us back because sometimes we do have a slight change of plans <laughs> that forces us to have to explore new terrain, right? This happened in my personal life where I was this budding concert violinist that was on the speed train to hopefully becoming a pro. And then overnight, I have a hand injury that totally ends my career basically in an instant. And I remember at the time asking myself all sorts of existential questions like, who am I without the violin? Like, what value do I bring to this world? It was though someone had pulled out the rug from underneath me because for my entire life, I defined myself as being a violinist. And all of a sudden I wasn't and I didn't know where to go from there. So it was so obvious to me in hindsight that I was falling prey to identity foreclosure and that it would actually be very valuable for me over time to start seeing my identity as more malleable, to think of potentially not the activities that I associated myself with, but instead the features of those activities that I wanted to associate myself with. So in the case of the violin, while I had an attachment to the physical instrument, I think the thing that really got me ticking, the thing that really excited me about playing the violin uh, was that I could emotionally connect with others. And so once I identified, oh, that's the underlying trait that I care about that matters to me, I was able to identify that same trait in other pursuits that I've since explored, like in my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, you know? And so I think that can be really helpful for people who are looking to break from their past in some way, either because they're forced to or because they want a better path forward, right? So try to think about their identity as, as more malleable, um, as something that can in fact change over time and has a dynamic quality to it. And I imagine that you've gone through similar experiences with identity foreclosure, yeah? If you'd like a shortcut to better sleep, more energy, and a calmer, more stable mood, then you should make sure you're supplementing with magnesium daily. Let me tell you why. About 75% of people are magnesium deficient. This deficiency can lead to higher levels of anxiety, irritability, trouble sleeping, and low energy. It can even contribute to foot and leg cramps while you sleep. The good news is that you can experience a number of positive health benefits from just getting enough magnesium, including better sleep, more energy, less irritability, and even a calmer mood. But to experience these health benefits, you have to get the right kinds of magnesium. The truth is, most magnesium supplements you'll find in health stores use only the two cheapest synthetic forms, and this is why I recommend Magnesium Breakthrough by Bioptimizers. Their organic, full-spectrum magnesium supplement includes seven unique forms of magnesium that can help reduce stress and improve sleep. Simply take two capsules before you go to bed, and you'll be amazed by the improvements in your mood and energy levels. 
and how much more rested you feel when you wake up. For an exclusive offer for my listeners, go to magbreakthrough.com forward slash Doug. It's M-A-G breakthrough.com forward slash Doug and use code Doug 10 during checkout to save 10% and get free shipping. Again, go to magbreakthrough.com forward slash Doug and use code Doug 10 during checkout to save 10% and get free shipping. We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second, but first wanted to give a quick shout out to Danette May and Earth Echo Foods. Danette was a past guest on the podcast and shared her incredible story and how it inspired her to create her products such as Cacao Bliss, which I take every day, either in my coffee or in a smoothie. It starts with 100% organic cacao beans that are naturally kissed by the sun, maintaining its miraculous health benefits. Then it's blended with turmeric, MCT oil, coconut, Himalayan sea salt, cinnamon, and black pepper for the perfect blend to make you feel the best you ever have. The result? Fall in love with a truly decadent, healthy, guilt-free chocolate, removing your cravings, facilitating weight loss, boosting your energy, and reducing your inflammation with one simple drink. Not only that, it is friendly to keto, gluten-free, paleo, vegan, and vegetarian diets. So go to earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug Bobst. Again, earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug Bobst. Check it out for yourself and learn more about the amazing benefits of Cacao Bliss. And when you enter in the promo code Doug at checkout, you'll get 15% off. Yeah, 100%. And, and several times, I mean, you know, obviously I went through a big one when I was dealing drugs and abusing drugs a lot as a kid. And that was my identity where I thought that I was going to be dead by the age of 25 because all I knew was that, you know, it wasn't going to be fun to live anymore if I couldn't party the way I was. And I had buried several friends by the time I was 21, went to funerals at such a young age that I knew that was my destiny. And that was a part of why I didn't change is because I thought that that's just where I was going to end up. So what was the point of even trying to change? And so when I was in, when I was incarcerated, I learned that I had the power to change. I had the power to make different decisions, which I didn't think I really knew that I could do. And what do you think was responsible for that shift in mindset? Because I think for so many people, they do feel stuck. And it's actually just that first realization of, oh, wow, I actually do think I can change. That makes all the difference. I think from, from my experience, I had blamed my circumstances for all of my problems. And I didn't take any accountability for how I responded to those circumstances. You know, I was, I was picked on a lot as a kid. My parents were divorced and I just had a lot of, a lot of hardship, you know, different forms of abuse and was always cut from the teams. And my, the way who I thought I was and my identity was I was going to be a good athlete. I wanted to, you know, date the pretty girls and do all these things. And I was total opposite of that. And not because I didn't want it. It was just because I just wasn't very talented. I was overweight, started to gain weight at a young age. So I started to wonder what was wrong with me. And I, you know, made choices to, to reflect that and, you know, self-medicated with pot, Oxycontin, selling drugs until it eventually landed me in jail. But when I was in jail and I, after I detoxed cold turkey from the Oxycontin, I started to think a little bit more clearly. And I just was like, wow, like I don't have life all figured out. Like clearly I'm not here. I am in jail. And my cellmate, I guess in a, in the short of it, just told me to, to quit being a victim. And it was hard for me to hear, but it was, it was what I needed to hear because everything I had done up until that moment had kept me in that same place. And he was like, there's a lot of people that experience bad things and unfortunate circumstances and they're not in jail. And I don't know, again, like I said, you know, towards the beginning of our conversation, I don't know what it was about that moment, 
but I felt like this guy had come into my life at a time where I needed it and just gave me some tough love when he had no skin in the game. He wasn't like a family member. He wasn't a close friend. And I was like, well, maybe he's right. Like, you know, my life isn't so good right now. Yeah, I love that. You realize that you had agency over your own situation, right? Uh, and I think that's what can hold us back when we don't feel we have at least some agency. Right. And I think there's a lot of people that are just they're so caught up in the thick of it and they're constantly stressed out and they're constantly being introduced to a new new level of trauma in their life that they don't even have the self-awareness to really know like what's going on because they're constantly in fight or flight. I mean, that's just my understanding and experience from talking to people. And for me, when I was in there, I just knew I had nothing else to lose. I was like, how much worse can my life get? I'm a convicted felon incarcerated. And that's, you know, fitness ended up saving my life in there. And, and it was just like small changes. Like you said, it was, you know, one push up, and then it was two push ups, And then all the way until I was able to do a set of 10 and run a mile. And, and that's what ended up shifting my life. But the reason I want to, you know, go back to that is because there's a lot of people that are just unaware of their behaviors and just acting in a way that just is a reflection, I think, of how they're feeling or their environment. So have you found in, in your research or maybe even with working with people or like, is there a way that somebody can become like aware of how they're making decisions and acting? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I don't know how well established or at least I'm not familiar with the research around what it takes to cultivate self-awareness and, and, and what's involved with that. Though, of course, there, you know, mindfulness work, cognitive behavioral therapy, all of that can help put you better in touch uh, with the express like your behavioral expressions. That said, I do think there are conscious choices that we can make in the face of adversity that can really turn our, li our lives around. When you were sharing your personal story, Doug, it was reminding me, it's a wildly different situation, but I actually see some similar psychological themes. So one of the people that I interviewed for the upcoming season of A Slight Change of Plans is this woman named Christine Ha. And in her early 20s, she started to develop a, a love of cooking because she was eager. Her, her mother had died of cancer when she was very young, and she was eager to recreate some of the Vietnamese dishes that she had grown up loving and that, that her mom had made for her. And then she developed an exceedingly rare neurological condition that led her to become legally blind by the age of 28. And in the interim time, she was also having partial paralysis and other really debilitating uh, health outcomes. And so in a moment, her life was turned upside down and she had this really poignant reflection. She said, when her mom died, she realized that and it was stunning to her when this happened as a child that the sun still rose the next day and people were still driving to work and the world was still going to be moving, <laughs> even though she had just had this profound loss in her life. And she said she had a very similar feeling when she lost her vision, which was, wait, the world is still moving on. Like my friends are still finding jobs and they're still finding reasons to laugh. And here I am stuck in this horrible situation and she felt you know really despondent because again she had a slew of health issues again that were really leading to uh, a, a challenging quality of life and then she said but then i made a decision which was i could either participate in this world right or i could just opt out of it entirely i could sit in a room and feel sorry for myself and lament the fact that this had happened to me and not somebody else or i could just choose to jump back in and one day at a time, try to relearn the things in my life that I've lost. 
And so similar to you where you said, you know, it was one push-up and then it was two push-ups, right? Christine said, you know, there was that first day where I tried to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and I couldn't get the bread to line up and I had jelly dripping all the way down my arm and I was so frustrated, just threw the peanut butter and jelly sandwich in the trash can. But then, you know, a few days later, it's like, wow, I, for the first time, can cut an orange. Wow, I'm able to actually hard boil an egg. And she had all this incremental progress. And guess what, Doug? She goes on to win MasterChef, <laughs> which is an incredible story. She's now a world-renowned chef. She has two restaurants that she's opened in Houston. She goes by the, the nickname, The Blind Cook. And Christine today is absolutely thriving. But I was so inspired by her story because it was a great example of being able to take a step back on your life, almost from a fly on the wall perspective. I was talking with a researcher named Ethan Cross. He's a professor at the University of Michigan about I how know, yep, I know yeah, taking that like third person perspective can be really helpful when it comes to um, targeting the challenges that we face in our in our lives. But kind of being the fly on the wall and saying, okay, Christine, like this is your life, right? Whether you like it or not, this is your life. Now you get to make that decision of whether you're going to opt out or whether you're going to opt in. And that was a major turning point for her. I love that. And I love that you that you shared that because it's it's really hard for people to hear. And I know that so many people go through unfortunate and ex- situations and extreme hardship. But the fact is, like, as much as we wish we could physically change that situation ourselves, like there's sometimes we, we can't and we're forced to live in that life. And if we ultimately want to be happy and to thrive in life and to, you know, somehow make the most of what we have, like the only way out of that is to move forward and figure out like, okay, what can I control? I'm either, like you said, I'm either going to opt in or I'm going to completely opt out. And you mentioned like the small steps and how she, you know, taught herself how to like re- cook again, right? And became yeah. this master chef. In a dangerous environment too, yeah. right? Don't forget there's knives, there's heat. Like I'm afraid sometimes and I and I have full vision. And so it is truly remarkable that she even ventured back into the kitchen to relearn everything from scratch. And so do you think that in your in your research and just talking to all these people that you've talked to on your podcast that the the blueprint to changing a behavior or changing a habit is taking these small steps absolutely i think when you you want to have your mindset on a motivating goal right it, it needs to be inspiring at the at the highest level right um so maybe her goal is to be able to cook one gourmet meal and that's the thing she's shooting for but we absolutely know from research that when you can parse that big goal into manageable micro steps it's you're much more effective at actually getting from point a to point b so this was relevant during my time at the white house i remember acquainting myself with some research coming out of the united kingdom where they were trying to help people who were unemployed return to work and as you can imagine and and you also face this transition right from you know a state of unemployment to a state of employment and it's a very psychologically daunting prospect to try to find work right so many people right now are suffering with unemployment and oh my gosh right it's 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 overwhelming it can be paralyzing and so what these researchers found is that when you break up this large large magnificent sounding thing into micro mini milestones, right? Like on Thursday, I'm going to get a business suit. On Sunday, I'm going to edit my CV. On Tuesday, I'm going to reach out to three connections that I know, you know, that's the way that you help accelerate people's return to work. And so again, it's a balancing act, right? You don't want it to only feel like a grind by only articulating those mini steps. You do want to have that big shiny goal, 
But unless you break that goal up into these very concrete steps, it's going to be very hard for people uh, to get all the way through and to retain resilience in the face of setbacks, right, which are inevitable. Um, you are absolutely going to have setbacks. But when, when you have that setback, Doug, right, how does your brain code it? If you only have the high-level goal, the answer is, I didn't get a job. I didn't get a job. But you, if you have all these mini milestones, you think to yourself, you know what? I didn't hear back from that one person I reached out to. No big deal. I have two others. Or, oh, I edited the top part of my CV and it wasn't that great. Okay, I'm going to re-edit it tomorrow. So it just changes the mental frame with which you even view setbacks and failures. And I think that's part of the solution in maintaining our commitment to to longer-term goals. Absolutely. And, and you, you brought up like the importance of staying consistent and doing the things you know you should be doing on a daily basis to get there. And I think there's so much talk there has been about these big goals, five-year goals, 10-year goals, lifetime goals. And I I think they're important, like you said, but there's not one person that ever achieves those goals without doing the, the small things every single day. And like you were so spot on with if you only focus on that big goal and you don't achieve it, well, that's all you had. But if you're consistently doing the things every single day and you know that you have like a, a small setback, like you know that if you continue to do those things every single day, it'll at least get you to where you're supposed to go. So I want to talk about you for a second. I want to, I know like one of the, the big stories you tell is how you, like you said, you were somebody who was, you're, you were on the path to becoming this violinist. And then obviously you had your own slight change of plans. You get injured and then you somehow, you know, you work your way and hustle your way, if you will, into, you know, running the behavior science team for the White House. And then now you have the podcast and everything else that you're doing. But what's like one recent like habit that you've been working on or that you've worked on to change that is, you know, had not like a drastically negative impact. Well, let's just say it's a habit you've been wanting to change for the good that has been recent for you. Yeah, I think it's actively practicing gratitude. I am all about the gratitude movement. It's first of all, it's rooted in science. And I've seen incredible gains from practicing gratitude in my life. And I, it doesn't have to be a formal thing. It's not like I have a journal where I'm constantly writing things down, though I have in the past, you know. It's actually just a reorientation mindset where when I'm in the throes of grief or sadness, um, trying to redirect my attention to some of the positive things can be very, very therapeutic. Uh, so to give you a concrete example, and I, and I talk about this loss on my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, but this past fall, my husband and I experienced a second pregnancy loss by a, a surrogacy in which we lost identical twin girls uh, to a miscarriage. And because this is, again, the second pregnancy loss, and we also loved our surrogate and would no longer be able to work with her coming out of this, I was so grief-stricken and so despondent, and I felt really hopeless. <laughs> and I remember, I remember that night, you know, having trouble falling asleep, and my husband turned to me and said, okay, we're going to do gratitude lists right now. And I was like, Jimmy, get out of here. Like, that's the last thing I want to do, right? I feel like shit. I don't want to talk about what I'm grateful for. Okay, I'm only just upset right now. And he said, just, just try it. It'll be really simple. Just let's talk about five things that we're each grateful for or we still have in our lives. And oh my gosh, <laughs> that was a transformative moment. It's not like all of a sudden my sadness went away. That wasn't the purpose it served. What it did give me was perspective. I had been in a little bit of a narrow tunnel for some time because the surrogacy process is so intensive. And of course, I was chasing motherhood and you get all these emotions that, that come out in that experience. And I'd seen the ultrasound and the babies looked great. And so, you know, there's so much tied up in this 
that I'd forgotten that there was a bigger world outside of my journey to motherhood. That world involved my family and friends, my nieces and my nephews, that involved a job that I love, that involved my loving husband, that involved every day the fact that I'm able to live in a safe community where I can go for a walk and enjoy sunshine. Like it just, it gave me a very important perspective on all of the things that constitute my life in that moment. And again, it you're not necessarily diminishing the importance of the thing that's causing you sadness, but you're, last, you're at least seeing it against the backdrop of a much richer landscape. And I think that can be helpful. Um, and so I have been, I saw gratitude work well for me in those very acute stages of grief, but I also see it work wonders day to day as I'm just living, you know, my everyday life. Thank you so much for, for opening up and sharing that. I can't imagine like how you must've been feeling. And I gotta, I gotta think that that must be hard for you to talk about no matter how much time has passed. And you know, I think what you said is, is true. I think there's this healthy grieving process when you go through something traumatic and unfortunate. And then I think there becomes a time and it's, which is likely very individualistic where you have to say, okay, is, is simply just putting all of my energy into focusing on this? Is this really helping us into moving forward and having another shot at this or making ourselves feel better or, or whatever? And most of the time, it's like you said, having gratitude and changing your perspective and getting yourself out of that narrow tunnel is what's going to really allow you to continue to take those steps to move forward to better yourself from that situation. Yeah. And can I add one more thing? <laughs> one thing that I did that completely shocked myself in that moment, Doug, and I'd never planned to do was to share my story with all of my listeners. So two days after the miscarriage, I was talking with my producer and he decided he was going to interview me because all of a sudden the host of a slight change of plans has her own big slight change of plans. <laughs> and it totally was throwing me off. And I felt completely disoriented by the change. And one, it just showed me, okay, no one's immune <laughs> uh, to this change thing, right? We're all experiencing it as it is that true universal. And, um, I found so much therapy in being able to help other people through the pain that I was navigating. It was an overwhelming experience for me. So talk about gratitude. Like in that moment, I was, I was realizing, you know, I asked my guests every time I get into the studio to open up their hearts to me and their minds and their stories and to share with me the most, most vulnerable parts of their lives. And I had never done that myself. And so here I was needing the show as much as the show needs me. And so I felt the need to process things out loud. And as I was processing things out loud, I was noticing new things, new insights were coming to mind. I was understanding my psychology better, how I deal with grief, what my grief recipe is, you know, and it was so valuable. But then when I was able to share it and, and put it out into the world and I heard from listeners all over the world, it was astonishing to me how the, the therapeutic power of sharing our stories with one another. And it wasn't just from people who had had a similar experience to mine, miscarriage, but it was also people who had lost other things in life. Maybe they had lost a part of their identity because of a cancer treatment. Maybe they had lost their self-confidence because they lost their job. The important thing is that we were unified in the way that we were grieving the loss of something. And so, one element of my gratitude was the ability to find silver linings and to positively impact the people in this world from, from my own story. And so 
I would also tell folks like who are going through this, who are looking for, for new rituals, helping others. I mean, this is also evidence-based in terms of the scientific research, like being other-minded. That is one of the recipes for happiness. And so sometimes we spend so much time on like self-wellness, we forget that actually it's helping others that can provide the most therapy uh, in these moments of, of acute pain. Yeah. I mean, and, and thank you again for sharing what you just said. And I think that when we are vulnerable, it creates connection, right? I think it's, I think it's, I, I don't know who says, I think it's Brene Brown, actually. I think you says something about like vulnerability is the bridge to connection. And I think one of the hardest things for people when they're going through traumatic experiences, like you just shared, is that you, we feel alone, like you feel alone, right? Whether it's somebody that went through um, pregnancy battles like you did, or whether it's somebody who is suffering from addiction or somebody who is in a toxic relationship that completely devastating them, bringing them down, like people feel alone. And so kudos to you for opening up and sharing that. And I guarantee you that down the road, it's just going to make your audience even more engaged with you on episodes that aren't with you being as vulnerable. Maybe a guest is being vulnerable. So I think it's awesome on, on so many levels. I want to talk about dealing with change because I think a lot of times people like when they have their own slight change of plans, it's hard for them to deal with that change, whether it's planned or unplanned. So have you found in, in either in talking to your guests in your own experience or research, is there like a few things that can help like mitigate some of these negative emotions or feelings that come with some of these unfortunate setbacks? You know, it's so interesting before creating this podcast, I think I would have said, oh, you know, you should give different advice to people who have a willed and desire change or an unexpected, you know, negative change. But the reality actually is that we're such bad cognitive forecasters that we're very, very bad at predicting how we will respond to change of any kind, perceived good or bad. <laughs> and I've seen that time and time again with my guests who have found themselves in a situation that they assumed would only be tragic, like only terrible. And yet, when they opened up their minds just a bit, they realized that there was some opportunity for growth. There was some opportunity for learning. There was actually some opportunity for to feel heartened by aspects of their environment. And so to make this more concrete, one woman I interviewed was a Korean-American journalist who was trying to cover the plight of North Korean defectors, so people who would um, escape North Korea and, and flee to China in, in search of freedom. And while she was on a journalism trip capturing footage for a, an upcoming documentary, she was actually captured by North Korean soldiers and detained in North Korea for 140 days. She had an absolutely harrowing experience when she was in that situation, of course. But there was one thing that surprised, her name is Yuna Lee, there was one thing that surprised Yuna, and that was the humanity that she saw in the guards who were watching over her. She actually built really strong emotional bonds, in particular with some of the female guards who were watching over her. And there was this incredible connection that formed between them where she realized, you know, I'd been raised to, to think about North Koreans as the enemy and they had been raised to see me, you know, a South Korean as, as the enemy. And yet here we are bonding and laughing and giggling over girlish things as we gossip. And she said, it completely transformed the way that she perceives the new, you know, she's back in the U.S. now, reunited with her family, but it completely has changed the way that she watches the news, that in her mind, North Koreans are also the North Koreans that she met in her personal life, who showed her acts of kindness when kindness was not expected or necessary, who cared about her and her family and actually wished that she could, would find a way home, you know? And so 
what Yuna taught me is that in the throes of change, right, especially change that just on the face of it looks absolutely horrific, if we can keep an open mind, approach change with a profound amount of humility and allow it to surprise us in some ways, it can actually be in our own best interest to do so. You know, I, I had another guest that I talked to, his name is Scott. The first time that I interviewed him, he was in the midst of treatment for stage four bone cancer. So a little backstory on Scott is he's a total health nut in his early 30s. He uh, actually builds cancer detection tools at work. And then out of nowhere, he gets a stage four bone cancer diagnosis that leads him overnight to have to amputate his right leg, remove a vertebra from his spine and have surgery on his other leg. And, you know, this is a guy who's like the paragon of health and fitness. Okay. High intensity interval training, intermittent fasting. He's a vegan. He's devoted his entire adult life to being fit, right? That's a core part of his identity. And then all of a sudden he has to occupy this new and changing identity, right? And I was able to actually catch up with him for a second episode where he's, you know, I'm so happy to share that he's successfully completed cancer treatment is back in California. But now he's adapting to life after treatment and kind of wrestling with all the new identities that he might occupy and how to think differently about his life and how to think differently about who he is. Like, who am I? Who is Scott now on the other side of treatment? And so he's also felt in many ways, like he's become a better person through all this. He, he, was, he was joking, like, you know, sometimes I feel like maybe I just need a good ass kicking, you know, that I needed this to happen to me so that I could become a better, you know, more empathetic person. And that's not to say again, that Scott's experience was not harrowing. I mean, he obviously, you know, he shared that it was very, very, very challenging, but he has seen that there are aspects to his experience that he's actually very grateful for. That's amazing. You've interviewed some, again, super inspiring people on your podcast, and it's it's incredible, um, some of these stories that you've shared. I guess my, my, my last question I have, again, this is a selfish one because I get asked it a lot, but I want to ask the cognitive scientist, is like, how do you make the change that you know you need to make, but for some reason you just have no willpower to do it. Like in the example that I'll, the, the question I always get is like, how do you get the, the person who's str- suffering from addiction to get off the couch and ask for help when they just have no willpower or no confidence in their ability to, to move forward? Yeah, look, it's an amazing question. I don't feel licensed to answer because I'm not an addiction therapist and I, I would never want to step over my knowledge set on a topic that's so important. But what I can say is from an, an earlier theme that we discussed that Simply getting your foot in the door on a new path forward can be incredibly helpful and really facilitate progress. And in part, the reason for that is you're signaling to your mind that this new route you're taking matters to you and is important to you. So when you, let's say you're trying to get fit, right? You're like, I really want to start going to the gym. Buy the gym membership. Go one day to the gym. You've now told your brain (laughs) that going to the gym is something that you value. And that can have really positive reinforcing effects. It can actually drive you to go back more and more because it's becoming a part of your identity. It's like, 
well, I don't want to question that I make crappy, you know, I don't want to think I make crappy decisions. So the mere fact I went to the gym yesterday means that yesterday Maya thought this was a really good decision. And like, I don't want to undermine yesterday Maya, right? I want to believe that she made a really good decision for me. And so we do find, you know, it's, it's colloquially known as like the foot in the door phenomena, but it really is the case that those very small steps, you know, to bring this back full circle from themes we hit on earlier in the conversation, those small steps in the beginning can actually propel you to engage in, in really positive and actually cultivate longer term habits. Right, right. And I think the problem is so many people, they want to get their foot in the door and they want to run up 20 flights of steps, you know, instead of just focusing <laughs> on, right. on getting their foot in the door. And, and you're absolutely right, because I think as soon as they, they make that small change and they realize how much better they feel, they feel a sense of accomplishment, they finally feel good that they did the thing they knew they should have done. And maybe they run into a friend or they make a new friend and now they are creating new experiences with whatever behavior or choice that they were scared to make. So, so Maya, I wanted to thank you again. I know your time is valuable and your time is limited and I really appreciate you coming on. Absolutely, Doug. I'm grateful that you're sharing all these stories <laughs> um, with, with your listeners because I'm sure they, they have so much to benefit. So I appreciate you. Yes. Thank you so much. And for those listening, what I want you to do is I want you to go give Maya a follow on social media. We will make sure to plug all her social media stuff in the show notes, as well as her podcast, Slight Change of Plans, which by the way, podcast of the year 2021 by Apple Podcasts. You'll definitely want to check it out. And what I'd also invite you to do is to share a takeaway. Whether it was something that Maya said about, you know, maybe it was one of the people she interviewed or it was something she said about changing a habit or behavior change or something from her own personal story, whatever it was, tag Maya, tag myself, because we'd love to hear your feedback. And we once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and we'll see you next time.